let's get going. We're starting a new series in, in a couple of weeks' time. But before we get there, I just want to hit pause on our normal rhythm of how we do preachers, how we do these series. And I want to speak into something, maybe more accurately, someone who's been on my heart recently, and that is this fella, John the Baptist. A fascinating, elusive, strange character that comes up through Scripture in every single gospel. This person who was a voice, the one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. A really significant character, and yet has been overlooked so much in our teaching. And I want to jump straight into one of the texts that introduces him, and that's in Mark 1. If you've got a Bible or if you've got a phone, grab it out and go to Mark 1 right at the beginning of um, Mark's gospel, this biography about the life of Jesus, and we're going to read these few verses together. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, let's pause there for a second. I promise you we're going to go a little bit quicker than stopping at every verse. Here's the thing. Here's what Mark's whole gospel, this whole book, this whole story is about. It is about Jesus. The beginning of the good news. This is good news, guys, about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And there are traditions in the church where they don't read the gospel in church unless everyone is standing. And so we're going to do that together, okay? We're going to hear the gospel by standing together. So stand up with me. Okay, let's read this together. Well, actually, I'll read it. You just read along. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. That's very good. Well done, Anglicans. Right, let's take a seat. (laughs) Now, I don't know if you enjoy going out for a little meal or being hosted by someone else. I absolutely love it. You don't maintain this body shape if you're not into that kind of thing. (laughs) And here's the thing. I used to be a main course guy, okay? I loved a main course. I'd love a dessert just on the side, a little bit later, a bit of sweet tooth, you know, enjoy that. I was never really a starter guy. And here's the thing. Any starter people in the house? Yeah, okay. Here's the thing I didn't understand about starters. If you go to a really nice restaurant or someone who's really thought through hosting, the starter always compliments the main course. It's like it it tickles your senses and says, here's something that's going to be good. You're going to enjoy this. Here's something that's going to get you ready, that's going to get you engaged for the main course. It's not the main course itself, but it is critical. It's absolutely critical. It gets you ready. And that's what is going on in this passage. It's not the main course. It's not the main course of why we're here. We're here for Jesus. That's what Mark is saying. Out the blocks, we're here for Jesus. But... Before we get there, we want to pause. I want to introduce you to this person, John 
the Baptist. He is the starter. He tickles your senses for what is to come. Anna can't stand tickle your senses. She's just, she's on fire there. She's in real trouble. Okay, this is how Mark kicks it off. Let me tell you about what this book is about. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. What are you here for? Unequivocally, irrevocably, uncontainably, Jesus. That is why we are here. That is why we are reading this book. But he spends some verses here, as every gospel account does, by the way, introducing us to John with such care, such precision. And this is the point. To unpack Mark's understanding of who Jesus is, we need to get acquainted with John the Baptist. More than that, we need to get acquainted with the message that he is carrying. But here's the quandary. To get acquainted with John the Baptist and why he's so significant, we also need a little bit of context of why Mark is starting with John the Baptist. Why is he going with these verses that we've just read? So we're going to do a little bit of context. Are we up for that? A little bit of Old Testament theological context. Are we all excited by that? Okay, I'll take it. Here's the thing. This, this passage in Mark begins with a quote from, where's the quote from? Thank you so much. Trick question, not quite correct, but I will give you this for, for this. It does say it's from Isaiah. The reason it's a trick question is actually from three different prophets, from Isaiah's one of them, from Moses, and from Malachi. It's this mashup of all of these prophetic words that we read in the Old Testament. And the reason Mark names Isaiah, though, is to clearly name the context into which he writes this book, this account, this biography of Jesus, that Jesus doesn't drop out of thin air. Jesus matters that he's a first-century Jewish man rather than a fifth-century woman from Africa or a 15th-century British guy or an 18th-century Russian poet. It matters that he is a first-century Jewish man. Why? Because he is the climax of the story of Israel. That is what we're about to unveil through this book. Jesus is the climax to the story of the people of God. And so to get the fullness of what's going on, we're going to go through, through each of these prophets. Okay, so here's the first one, Exodus 23. Exodus was the story of God rescuing Israel out of Egypt, bringing them through the Red Sea into the wilderness, across the River Jordan, into the Promised Land. It's this incredible landscape of God pulling his people towards the Promised Land. And this chapter 23 is right in the middle of that story, and it says this in verse 20. This is Yahweh God speaking. He says, see, I'm sending an angel or a messenger, that would be translated as well, ahead of you to guard you along your way and to bring you to the place I've prepared. Pay attention to him. Listen to what he says. Now, here's the point. The story of Exodus was the central story for the people of God. This was their story. This is what they remembered every year at the festival of Passover. This is the story that they lived by. It's the story that they lived out. Everyone knew it. Pause. Hold that. Put it in your pocket. We'll come back to it later. Isaiah. Isaiah 40. This is where Israel are in pain. They are a nation, a people of God in real pain. And the first 39 chapters are before they are put into exile. And it's warning them to repent. Guys, wake up. Don't be um, worshippers of idols. Don't get this wrong. Be faithful to Yahweh. Be faithful to God. But from chapter 40 onwards, this is the hinge point we're about to read. The, the first verse of chapter 40, it was written back to a nation who were in exile. 
because it didn't go so well. This nation are in real pain, and it says this. The whole tone changes. It says, comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, this should be you know, familiar to us, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. It's almost Marvin Gaye, but it's not quite. <laughs> the rough ground shall become level and, and um, urged in pl- places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is a prophecy about the future, a picture of Israel walking down a highway, down a road marked out for them towards freedom. This was the end of the story that they needed. This is the prophetic word of the future that they had longed for. But it's not only that. It's a prophecy of God coming back into the promised land. Because if you know this story, God's presence is removed from the temple. God's presence is separate from his people. And in this passage, we read this prophetic sense where God's presence is coming back. God's presence is coming back. He is returning to his people. Two down, one to go. Malachi 3. Now, this is the last prophet in the Old Testament. It's the last book of the Old Testament before we get to the New Testament. And it says this in chapter 3, verse 1 onwards. It says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming. Punchy. Who can stand when he appears? For he will come like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap, which is fun imagery that gets slightly lost on us. But he will come to judge. He will come to separate. Yes, God is coming back. Yes, he's coming to save his people. His presence is coming to dwell with them. And yet, who can endure the day of his coming, this sense that judgment is coming. More than that, justice is coming. Justice is coming. That God won't just come to save his people, but he will come as a divine judge. That justice will roll like a river. And that's good news, by the way. That's gospel truth, because God knows all about evil and injustice. He knows more about it than you do. He knows more about it than I do, and he sees it. More than that, he doesn't just see it. He will judge it. He is a God of justice. And then, at the end of Malachi, silence, nothing. Hundreds of years, no prophets, no voice of the Lord, nothing. God goes on mute. Back to Mark. So in light of all of those stories, in light of all those expectations, this man comes out of the wilderness. And so John the Baptist, a messenger who's been sent, appeared in the wilderness, Exodus language, preaching a baptism of repentance, Malachi judgment for the forgiveness of sins. 
And so this man enters the scene of Judea. This man wearing camel's hair for his clothes. This man who eats locusts and wild honey. This man, a cousin, a distant cousin of Jesus, preparing the way for the Lord to come. This man's so aware of his own place in the story. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals, to do the role of a slave. I'm not even worthy to scrape the muck from between his toes. I am not worthy. An extraordinary guy. So we're going to linger for a little bit of time with this man. And I think there's something prophetically, I really mean this, there's something prophetically for us as a community in the character of John the Baptist. But I think there's something personally, there's an enormous amount of challenge that should come when we look at John the Baptist, when we gaze upon his life. It should encourage us, but it should really challenge us. It should really challenge us. And here's a sense of what I think we should pay attention to this morning. John's distinctiveness. He's pretty distinctive. I think that's a kind word. He's pretty weird. Let's just call it for what it is. He's pretty weird. John's message. What is he carrying for the people of Israel? And John's wilderness. Where does he find himself? So let's do that together. His distinctiveness. He is nuts. Let's just call a spade a spade. John the Baptist is nuts. When I think of him, he's just wild. Do you know what I mean? He's the guy that you kind of want to come to your party, but you're also terrified about what might happen if he comes to your party. He's totally wild. He's certainly distinctive. And it says this in verse 6. John wore clothing made of camel's hair. With a leather belt around his waist, he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, there's two things going on here. The first is this, that he's just really different. Let's just, again, call a spade a spade. He's pretty different. He's distinctive in his vibe. Because the religious leaders of the day, they would have lived in Jerusalem. They would have been wealthy. They would have been educated, connected, part of a certain class. They would have colluded with the powers of the day. But John, he's totally different. Yes, he's teaching. Yes, to some extent, he is a rabbi. He has people who are following him, but he's in the wilderness. He's not in Jerusalem. He spends time in the River Jordan, not in the temple. He's poor, not rich. He's rough around the edges, to put it lightly. He is not all there. He's not all there. And this should be good news. This should be good news. I don't know if you ever feel on the edge You're not wearing the right stuff, in with the right people, not matching up to what you think is expected of you. I do. The first time we came to KXC, I've actually never told bees in the house. I've actually never told people this. We we spent so long desperately trying not to come to KXC. I'll tell you why. Because every time we walked in, we're like, we're just not the right people. We've not got the right vibe. We've not got the right look. We're not going to fit in with this group of people. We didn't feel all there. That should be hugely challenging for us as a community, by the way. Let's just pocket that one again. We'll come back to that. The pocket's going to get full. <laughs> if you don't feel all there, that is just where God can use you. That is just where God can use you. Not to be ideal, ready, perfect, formed for God to use you, but just the way that you are right now. If you're feeling broken, If you're feeling on the edge, if you're feeling on the outside, God can, not only that, he will use you. Be expectant for God to use you. Later, Jesus will say this of John the Baptist. He'll say he was the greatest prophet born of a woman. That's everyone, by the way. 
He's the greatest prophet born of a woman. How? Because he set himself apart for the glory of God. He made sure that he was distinctive so that people would look at him as a signpost and then he pointed to Jesus. It's as simple as that. He pointed to Jesus. That's what it looks like to be called the greatest prophet ever born. That's an accolade. But there's something deeper here. This language from verse three is from verse six is actually taken from two kings. This crazy story in two kings one about the prophet Elijah. And I just want to read that for you. It's just a couple of verses. It says this: The king asked them, "What kind of man was it that came to meet you and told you this?" And they replied, "He had a garment of hair, he had a leather belt around his waist." And the king said, "Ah, that was Elijah." The Tishbite. This is a crazy story, by the way. If you read this in context, they're looking for who said something specific, a prophetic sense of what was happening. And they were like, who was it who said this? Like, what, were they, what did they even look like? And he was like, well, he was wearing camel's hair and he had a, a leather belt around his waist. And like, oh, Elijah. Yeah, we know that guy. We remember him. Imagine being so distinctive that the king's like, oh, Elijah. Just on his dress sense, that's Elijah. That's punchy. That's punchy. Fast forward to the end of the story of Elijah. He never dies. If you know the story of Elijah, he gets taken up to be with Yahweh God. And Israel are waiting for Elijah to return to usher in the way for the Lord. And then John turns up wearing his garment of camel's hair, leather belt around his waist. This wasn't subtle. This wasn't nuanced. This wasn't something you'd miss. It was like an Elvis tribute act walking in the room right now and us all looking at them and being like, I wonder what they're trying to be. Like you would know exactly what was going on. And the nation of Israel were looking at John the Baptist and saying, it's the second Elijah. That is who he is. That is what is going on. He was distinctive. He was unique. You could spot him in a crowd. He was recognizably set apart in all that he was, in all that he did, in all that he wore, in all that he spoke, in the company that he kept. KXC, how distinctive are we? How distinctive are we as a community, as a group of people? Do we stand out in a crowd? Would people remember you when you left? Are we set apart for the purpose of pointing towards Jesus? Let's make this personal. How distinctive are you as a follower of Jesus? How distinctive am I as a follower of Jesus? Do we look like, do we smell like, do we act like, do we sing like, do we dance like the rest of the world? Or are we distinctive? Are we set apart? Are we so kind and so generous that people are like, what was that? What was it that they carried, that they had such generosity everywhere they went, not just with money, but with how they lived their lives, how open their life was? Are we so loving that we make an impact in every relationship that we have, that we leave a mark, that we carry peace into moments of crisis, into moments of anxiety? Are we so full of joy that we carry a deep joy into places of pain, into places of despair? Those are helpful barometers, by the way. Galatians 5, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. What is an outworking of being a follower of Jesus? What's an outworking of being someone who is a person of the Spirit? Of love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I'm terrified when you start that list. I just read them. I don't want to do it off, off my own bat. I'll get it wrong. <laughs> 
People of the Spirit should live lives that are unique, that are distinctive. You should stick out. You should stick out. Are we distinctive? John certainly was distinctive, set apart, wholly devoted to the service of a coming king. So he was distinctive. But more than that, he had a message. Verse 3 says this, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the paths for him. Make room. Create space for God. Prepare yourself. Prepare your heart. All of that stuff. But there's something deeper again. To prepare the way for a conquering king for a nation was quite an ordeal. When a king had conquered a nation, you would say, prepare the way for this king to come in and for the celebrations to begin. But it was a pretty big ordeal because what you need to do is create a road that enabled that conquering king to come directly, the shortest possible way. And the terrain was pretty rough. The journeys were incredibly long. And they weren't knocking out engineering awards for bridges and tunnels and all that kind of stuff back then. So to help get to that place, they would literally have to flatten mountains. They'd have to raise valleys to make sure that the terrain was possible for the shortest possible distance for that king to come in. Now that sounds fine. That just sounds like a little bit of work. If you were hearing this message, do you know what it meant? It meant slavery. It meant slavery. To hear this message of preparing the way, to prepare the road, the highway, for the conquering king to come in was a message of terror, of pure terror. What sounds to us like liberation, like celebration, would have felt like pure oppression. It would have felt like death of slavery. But here's the key. Whenever Mark uses this word, road, this word highway, in the rest of the gospel, do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about the cross. He's always talking about the context of the road to the cross. Of Jesus walking along the path to the cross. It's always about the cross. The king isn't coming to conquer his people. The king is coming to liberate his people. To take on death. To take on slavery. Lead them into freedom. That is what is going on in this. Kings go to thrones, but this king went to the cross. That's the difference. That's the difference between this king and every other that they would have known. What do you need to prepare in your life for a coming king to bring his freedom? What needs freeing in your life? Because so often I think there are things that if we're really honest, we just put a little boundary around and say, Lord, I want you to do everything in my life except this one. I'm not sure about this one. Maybe I don't trust you. Maybe I don't think you're good enough. Maybe I just don't want the shame of that being uncovered. But you can have everything else. But this one, I'm, I'm not so sure. I don't really want the liberation in that area. It feels far more like he's going to come and conquer you than he would come to liberate you. Maybe we could give him some of it, but just not all of it. I reckon I could give him my my work, but maybe not my relationships. I want to do that one for myself. I can give him my finances. That feels pretty big. We always talk about money, and and that feels hard. But do you know what I don't want to do? I don't want to give him the choice of where I might live. I want to hold on to that one. I want to hold on to my community. I can give him my studies, but definitely not my kids. 
He wouldn't know what to do with my kids. I know their needs. He doesn't fully know or appreciate what they will need. But it says here that John is preaching a baptism of repentance. Now, baptism, it comes from the word baptizo to, to um, submerge, to immerse yourself fully. We've got some baptisms tonight. If you're around later on, come to the five o'clock. Hear some stories of God turning lives around. It'll be really fun down at the Ethiopian church. But it was an act of repentance, of metanoia, of literally turning in the direction of Jesus and saying, you can have it all. You can have every part of me, not just the bits that I've you know, not sealed off, but you can have all of it. And for John's followers, as it is right now, in our day and age, baptism was about family. It was about an act of allegiance. Whose family were you going to be part of? When people enter into a baptism in the name of Jesus, extraordinary things happen. Allegiances change. Your family, your identity changes. It's why some Orthodox religions, if someone is, enters into a baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, a funeral takes place. They've left the family. They found a new one. They've, they've you know, created allegiance to something entirely new, an outward sign of an inner reality that God can make you clean. Not just the bits you want him to, but every part of you, not dipping your toe, every part of you. He wants freedom for every part of you. Let's try and ground this. So I've, I've always struggled with food, with eating too much food. I said before, you don't maintain this body size and shape without enjoying food a little bit too much. You don't pull out little analogies for a passage um, which are about main courses and starters if you don't like food. I like food a little bit too much. I know a lot of us like food a little bit too much. But here's the thing. When we had our kids, I realized, wow, a lot of your life becomes out of your control. It's really difficult. You have to put to death quite a lot of your own freedom. Do you know what I could do to deal with that? I can eat a little bit more. I can eat something on the way home from work. I can stash some food in our cupboard so that Joe doesn't see it, and I can have that whenever I want. That's my little collection. And then COVID hit, and more freedom was taken away. More control over our lives was taken away, and it's the same again. Maybe I'll eat a little bit more. It's a little bit harder now because we're in the house, so maybe it becomes a bit more secretive. Maybe it becomes a little harder to make that a reality all because I needed a place of control. I wasn't willing to give that to the Lord and say, come and enter in. Would you liberate me? Because I was more terrified that he would come and conquer me. It sounds quite hard to get rid of something like that. When it's your one area of control, when it's the one lever you can pull, you don't really want God to come and do something with that because you've kind of made it work. But the problem is you haven't made it work. You've become a slave. You're not free at all. It's harder to be with the kids. There's something on my mind all the time. I need to find a way to find a shop on the way home. It's not freedom at all. It's slavery. It's slavery. And God says, I want it all. I want every part of you. And that's by no means conquered. But do you know what there is? There's a daily exercise that says, Lord, you can be in it. You can have all of me. You can have all of me, and it's a daily, 
discipline. It's a daily reminder. Sometimes it goes better than others. But Lord, you can have all of me. Now, I'm aware there'll be some in the room for whom an eating disorder is part, has been part, will be part of your story. And I don't want to make light of this. I'm also aware that it's not often as simple as just inviting God into a situation on a daily basis. There is more that we need to do. There's help, there's support, there's therapy. We can help signpost people to all of that. But here's my sense for many in the room. In fact, I think it's my sense for all of us in the room watching at home. It doesn't matter if you're here for the first time or the hundredth time. God wants it all. God wants all of you. He wants every part of your life to be abandoned to him. Why? Not so he can conquer you, but so he can liberate you. He wants freedom for every part of your life. There's this beautiful verse in 1 Peter which talks about people participating. I want to participate, is what Peter says, in the sufferings of Christ. And I think there's an invitation to join him on the road to the cross. Because it will feel like death. Do you know why? Because it is death. It's a death to the things in your life that are causing you suffering. It's a death to the things in your life that are controlling you. Why? So you can be liberated. You can be liberated. There is a joy in participating in the suffering of Christ. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. So, John, he's certainly distinctive. He's pretty weird. He carries a message of repentance, of liberation, but he also exists in a very real and a very bleak wilderness. And we're landing soon, I promise. Back to verse 4, it says this. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Not only did John choose to live in a physical wilderness, he was in the desert, but what strikes me when I think about John is the lens through which he saw the world compared to how we see it in this place, in this time. So we have the joy, the privilege of gathering together to worship the name of Jesus in light of his life, of his death, of his resurrection. And for John, it was completely different. Just imagine this. Imagine growing up together with Jesus, yes, but not yet seeing the fullness of his life, what he was going to do, his death, his resurrection. And yet John can sustain living in wilderness. Imagine banking your entire life, not just in the, the words that you say and the proclamations you make in the community you keep in something like this, but everything about you, the weirdness of what you wear, the place that you live, the desolate environment that John was operating from, banking all of that on a coming king. Absolutely extraordinary. He can sustain this wilderness. He lives in the darkness before the fullness of light has come, as it says in John's gospel. That should be unbelievably encouraging, by the way. That should be unbelievably encouraging. Because I know, because we chat, that many in this room are operating out of a place of what feels like wilderness. It feels like you're in the wilderness right now. A wilderness in your heart, you feel empty. You feel uncertain about the future. And a wilderness of our relationships alone, scared, terrified about what might Come, a wilderness of the workplace, you feel overwhelmed, you feel directionless, purposeless. What is my thing? A wilderness of faith, real doubt, real doubt 
a deconstruction of faith without knowing how you put it all back together. Maybe a wilderness of calling. What am I supposed to do with my life? What am I about? We can take courage from John. We should take courage from John that even in the wilderness we can operate with life. We can operate with light. We can operate with faith. And I want to take this one step further. This isn't just for your sake. This isn't an Isaiah 40 verse 1 thing of comfort, comfort my people. This isn't just so that you feel good in that moment. The wilderness in which you're operating needs the light and life of Jesus. This isn't just so that you can coexist and cope through the wilderness that you find yourself in. It's so that people in your workplace can know about Jesus. They can understand what's on offer for them. It's so that in your relationship, everything about what you are and what you do with another person is pointed in the direction of Jesus. It's not just so that you can get through. It's so that Jesus can come in. That is what is going on. I want to land by making this super practical because John's distinctiveness was was definitely intense, right? His message was pretty costly. His wilderness at times felt pretty oppressive. And the obvious question is, how does he sustain this? Where does, it, where does it come from? How does he get through it? How does he keep doing this day in, day out, where he was and what he did, an extreme character living a pretty extreme life? Maybe he's just one of those intense people. We all know them. There are some intense people out there. They can just sustain their lifestyle. But I, I want to suggest that there's something else going on here. And here's the clue in Luke 1, the first chapter of Luke's gospel. It goes right back to before John the Baptist was even born. This is where we learn that Elizabeth and Mary, they were cousins, which is why Jesus and John the Baptist are family, and were accidentally about to sleepwalk into the Christmas story, literally as far away from Christmas as we possibly can. But before we get bogged down in that, let's just read this beautiful verse after Mary has been visited by the angel, by Gabriel. It says this in verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, John the Baptist, or just John, I would have thought, is probably what he was known by, by that, at that point. The baby leapt in her womb. He leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Before we know anything about this man's life, before we know anything about what he's going to do, about the way he lives his life, about the relationships he keeps, we know that he has encountered the love of God through his Spirit. And he leaps for joy. He leaps for joy. The Holy Spirit comes upon Elizabeth and John leaps for joy. That same Spirit who fills Elizabeth is here today. Is here today by his presence and wants to meet with you. Wants to meet with I. Me. How do we become more distinctive? By encountering the Spirit of God How do we live out a message which is nuts? We encounter the Spirit of God. How do we sustain the wilderness? We encounter the Spirit of God. 